Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Lisa Bernstein. Towards the end of our conversation, I asked her what she had learned from her diagnosis. She recalls a friend who had another life-limiting illness and about his experience, he told her. I can only reach the people that I interact with, but that in each interaction there's the possibility, right, to affect others. And that's something that has always been so important to me. Here to tell her story is Lisa Bernstein. Lisa, I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to spend time with you. I want to start with your original journey in cancer. How did you know the diagnosis? How did that whole thing manifest and unfold for you? Thank you for asking. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I was 29 years old, and as I like to say, I was kind of minding my own business. And I was in Los Angeles at the time where I I still am. And it was a, a little over a week or maybe 10 days after the Northridge quake. So my life had already been shaken up immensely because that, and there's a reason I'm telling you this, that, that, that earthquake occurred at 4.31 in the morning on January, I'm pretty sure it was January 17th, 94. And I like to say it threw me out of bed because it started with a jolt and then a rolling motion. And I, I had experienced earthquakes, but nothing like this before. And it was, to use, I use the word terrifying absolutely specifically. Anyway, 10 days later, I I went for a biopsy. I already knew that I had a lump and I had no concept of what breast cancer was. Uh, There was no cancer in my family. I was not exposed to anything to do with, with cancer. There were other illnesses. So I didn't think much of it. And at the time I had these relatives in San Diego and they knew a surgeon and so I went there, I packed for, you know, three days and ended up staying, you know, three to four weeks. So when I woke up from the surgery, that's when this, I just remember how much kindness was emanating from this surgeon. And I was in a morphine daze and he said, you know, I'm so sorry, but it's, you have cancer. And I remember that. I felt tears come down my face. So there was a level at which I understood what he said. And there was also another level at which I had, you know, it was just, it was just like this complete new reality. And I had no idea what, what would then happen, if you will. Tell us about yourself at that time. You're 29 years old. You had no idea what this cancer was. Yet I imagine you thinking all kinds of things. But who was Lisa at the time? What were your hopes and aspirations? I don't know that anyone has asked me about that in relation to to that diagnosis. Thank you for that. I was very much a person trying to find who I was. (laughs) At the time, specifically, I was working as a waitress and I was in between jobs. I had finished grad school and I had been working on a couple of really amazing, interesting projects at the time at a company that people jokingly later on called the Ellis Island of Interactive Media. Today, we would call them maybe like interactive documentaries. 
And these projects were built on the entertainment industry film production model, where you work with a team on a project. And then when the project's done, or when your part of the project is done, you disband, but then the team gets another project and maybe you come back together again or so on and so forth. So I had been working on these projects. This was all at the intersection of entertainment and media and new media and content, you know, things we talk about today. And I had also worked for a producer on a, in Hollywood <laughs> on the Warner Brothers lot. And, you know, none of these jobs had stability. So in between looking for the next job, I was working as a waitress and I was taking acting classes and writing classes. At heart, I am an artist. That's where I was. Literally, I worked at this wonderful, at the time, restaurant called Book Soup Bistro. It was affiliated with a fabulous bookstore in West Hollywood. And, and then I got a cancer diagnosis. <laughs> you said when you started that piece that you were looking for who you were. You're looking to find yourself. So there you were in the midst of finding yourself. And then you found yourself in the middle of this <laughs> diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> and how did all that gel together? Did it propel you in a particular direction? Or do you think that you went in a different direction from where you were headed in the first place? Uh, what happened was it basically, in some ways, brought my life to a complete halt. Because now it was about, oh, you have breast cancer. So we, we found it. So what happens next? You know, so I was sort of, propelled into the medical system. And after those several weeks, I had all these different consultations down in, in San Diego, where I learned that I would have to have radiation. And that meant five days a week for like seven or eight weeks. And these family members were like, well, you could do it down here. And I was like, no, I live in LA. I need to do it up there. And so there was a whole long story that happened there with my needing to get a second opinion with a medical oncologist because the one that I had seen down in San Diego was incredibly dismissive. And I don't even know how I did it at the time because we didn't have the internet as we have it now. And I'd learned about tamoxifen and I even somehow had my pathology report and I, I'm not trained in the sciences. And I remember that there was a sentence in there that I didn't quite understand. But anyway, I went to see this medical oncologist and he sort of like leaned back in his chair. He's like, you're fine. You're good. You're going to have some radiation. You're good. You're fine. And I said, but I've heard about this drug called tamoxifen. Is that something that I should take? And he said, why, do you want to take tamoxifen? I said, well, I don't know. Should I? He said, well, I'll write you a script if you want. I'm like, okay. Anyway, I got a referral to radiation oncologist up in Los Angeles. And when I went to see her, I told her about this conversation with a med that medical oncologist. And she said, well, I have, I have some, some amazing doctors I can refer you to. And I remember she wrote them on a post-it note. There were two names. One was a woman and one was a man. They both had very interesting and unusual names. And I thought, all right, I'll try the woman first. And if that doesn't work, then I'll go with the guy. <laughs> so. I got an appointment with the woman, and that doctor is my oncologist to this day. So she's been my doctor since 1994. 
and that's when I was already engaged, if you will, in my own healthcare. And in my first meeting with this oncologist, she she said to me, okay, I'm going to order all of you. I'm going to get all of your pathology. I'm going to get it brought up here to LA and we're going to get it retested. I said, well, why would you need to do that? And instead of saying, well, that's just what we do. She told me why. She said, the results are only as good as the eyes that are looking at the, the samples. That blew my mind because I, I didn't have any concept of this, right? And when we, I, I don't remember if it was the first or the second meeting, but basically I will never forget that she was on a chair with little wheels and she came and sat closer to me and she said, let's look at your pathology report. And in a sense, she taught me how to read it. And this very sentence that had bothered me was, a, was the sentence that she brought up. She said, it says here, that they cannot ascertain whether there has been vascular invasion. And she explained what that was. And she said, because of that, I would recommend chemotherapy. And then she explained what metastasis is. And in the breast cancer community, to this day, to this day, you learn of patients who are diagnosed with breast cancer and no one has explained to them. They're diagnosed with early breast cancer. No one has explained to them what metastasis is and what adjuvant treatment is and why adjuvant treatment is prescribed. So thus began with this doctor a journey in what's now known as shared decision making. So that was one of the aspects. The other aspect was she said to me, I want to introduce you to one of my patients. She's a young woman. She had a different kind of cancer, but she does acupuncture and Chinese medicine. This was 1994. She said, I think it'd be a good idea for you to meet her, might help you with chemo. And then I just think it'd be good for you to talk to her. I said, all right. So I met this woman, this former patient, and she said to me, I remember she did the acupuncture and it didn't really do anything for the nausea. But she said to me, she told me her story and she said, cancer was a perverted gift in my life. She said that she had been married and when she was diagnosed, I think it was a lymphoma, the, the, her husband left her and it was a devastating situation. She'd always wanted to have children and so on and so forth. And then she said, over time, she ended up meeting someone who actually was the love of her life. And they ended up having one or two children. And she said to me, you know, you're making a really brave choice. I said, I'm not doing anything brave and I'm not making any choices. You know, I have to do chemo. She's like, no, you don't. She, and she told me about a patient of hers who had had elected not to do chemo, and there's no judgment, you know, everyone makes their choices. But she made me understand that I had agency and that I had choices. And also the power of that, what, what we call a peer-to-peer -peer interaction, that stayed with me. And it was that interaction that I think fueled a lot of things for me down the line, because during the years afterwards, I would go and see my oncologist for these follow-ups. And sometimes she'd say, you know, I have a really young woman who just got diagnosed. Would you? And I'm like, yes, of course, I'll talk to her. So going back to your question, we found cancer inside my body and cancer found me. And I certainly wasn't looking for it. But it's taken me a very long time because my life has had so much disruption, including the disruption of the subsequent two diagnoses, each one coming after I had been trying to rebuild my life. 
while still, you know, sort of hunting and searching for what am I even meant to do on this planet? And it's taken me maybe longer than the average bear to to sort of find myself. (laughs) Thank you. That's really helpful. So you're in the medical system. The medical system is providing you with a list of appointments and scans and biopsies and blood tests and whatever other thing is part of cancer treatment and diagnosis. Meanwhile, the young Lisa Bernstein is trying to find herself, and presumably you are still interested in a career and a life after this. What was going on there? Oh boy. So, you know, during that that first, I'll call it year and a half, you know, like I said to you, it was sort of like all cancer all the time. And in between, in the beginning, as I said, I was working as a waitress. I worked as a waitress for as long as I could stand up and walk around. And then I couldn't anymore because of all the side effects of chemo. We did the chemo radiation sandwich, as it was called. We started with chemo then did radiation in the middle and then did the, the second batch of chemo sessions afterwards. During radiation, I found work with a small interactive design agency in the city of Long Beach, which was about a 45-minute drive from where I live. And so somehow I managed to drive down there, and, and we knew that fatigue was coming. And so there were times when I would get there and then they had this little couch and I would lie down on the couch for an hour before I could work. And honestly, I don't know how I did it, but I did it. (laughs) And then, you know, like I had said before, because of the way this, this industry works where you work with people, you know, and then you get referrals to other people and other projects. I somehow managed to cobble things together here and there. I mean, there were times when I couldn't work. And then starting up in the early part of treatment was all of 1994. So the early part of 1995, I was able to work with some people I had worked with before. Again, you know, like on projects and then the projects had funding and then the projects didn't have funding. So then you had to find something else. And so I was building without specifically trying to, but I was building kind of like a freelance practice. At the time, I, now that I remember, when I, I talked about that the Northridge earthquake, that night, it was a Sunday night, I had done some freelance writing for a company in the, in the fashion business here in LA, the early stages of fashion business in LA. And I remember I had gone and dropped off the, the copy at their offices, offices and thought, tomorrow morning I get to sleep in. (laughs) That did not happen. So there was an economic necessity of of putting a roof over my head. So it was, what kind of work can I find? I wasn't someone who, when I was diagnosed, had a stable job where you could take time off from work and so on and so forth. And there was, by miracle, I had health insurance. So I was able to, to... to take care of, to a certain extent, obviously, to, you know, to see these doctors. So after that first diagnosis, it was all about survival. Like, how can I find work? How can I find work and preserve the health insurance that I have? Because the system in this country is so weird around that topic. And 
I kind of followed my interests. And I had worked a lot with designers and people in innovation. I didn't even understand, even though I had taken class, some of the most amazing uh, classes I took in grad school were with Ev Rogers, who wrote about, his book was Diffusion of Innovations and the S-curve of innovation and so on and so forth. I, I was working in innovation without realizing that I was. And so I followed the designers and I followed the smart people and I worked with them. And then one day I woke up and I found that I was in marketing and not in design and innovation anymore, because that's where sort of the, the smart people and the technology were going. And there came a point where I got incredibly frustrated with that and just a lot of trial and error. And all of this work in new media, I was, there was a lot of it was around content and like I said, innovation. Then one day I applied for a job, which I thought was a content job, but I got hired by the online community department. And this was also early days. Now we're talking just the, the dot-com era, <laughs> um, the 1998, 1999. And what happened was the guy who recruited me poached me from, like I, I sent my resume in, in response to an, this ad but this guy within the company had spoken to the HR people and said to them, okay, I'm looking for some people for my division. So if you see a resume that would work for me, let me know. <laughs> and so I ended up working for a company that doesn't exist anymore, but it was called GeoCities. And it was the early days of so social media as we know it now. I mean, that model is sort of what we, what we use now with Twitter, Facebook, and, and so forth. So, so Moyes, it was like I was pursuing this imperative of survival and this sort of trying to follow my curiosity and what I was good at. And then at the same time, I was continuing to take writing classes and improv classes and ceramics and never done a, an art degree, but I grew up in art studios and museums and always followed that passion. So I just, I don't fit in any boxes. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, and thank goodness you don't. So <laughs> you're now coming up to the second diagnosis. So at the second diagnosis, who was Lisa at that time? What were your hopes and dreams? And where could you see yourself heading from there? You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. So at my second diagnosis, ironically, first was 94. So in 2004, I was like, oh boy, it's been 10 years. I didn't even realize, by the way, when I was five years out that I was five years out until my oncologist said, wait, you're five years out. I was like, but she's like, no, it's five years from diagnosis, not five years from end of treatment. So I was aware all of a sudden, oh gosh, it's going to be 10 years. I'm not someone who does the cancerversary thing. That's something important for, for people for who that's important. And that's, that's very important for me. It was just sort of, it was so traumatic that I didn't want to think about it, but I realized it's going to be 10 years, Lisa, you really should celebrate this. You're, you know, and, and at the time I was, I was incredibly healthy. I had started training capoeira Angola, which is a multifaceted art form and it's very physical from a movement standpoint very athletic. 
And I'm like, okay, I will sell, I will, I will do the celebration. So I, I had this party and it was lovely. And then the following year, I go to see my oncologist for the dreaded twice annual horrifying follow-up visits that I hated going to. I've always loved her, but I've hated the visits. And for some reason on that day going there, I was like, oh, I'm not in such bad shape today. You know, I'm, I'm not too miserable. I go there and she is doing the breast exam and she's digging her hands into the tissue as she does. <laughs> and I saw the slightest little flicker of a, not a, it wasn't even a twitch, Moyes, just this thing on her eye. And she said to me, she said, can you feel this? She took my hand and she dug my hand into the tissue, right, up, up by my arm. And then I felt it. I'm like, yes. She's like, all right. And, and she knew me very well. She knew that I would want to know ASAP. I wanted answers right away, you know, no waiting around. And at the time, she had this incredible scheduler who, who worked with her. And the next day, I had the mammogram and ultrasound. And that was an incredible meeting, if you will, because the radiologist came in. And he said to me, he's like, well, and he explained to me the different kinds of cysts. He's like, there's two kinds of cysts. And he said, he got into technical details about it. And then he said, because it doesn't look like a benign cyst, or I think, I don't remember which one it is, but he said, I cannot rule out just based on looking at the results. He said, so we, we need you to do a needle biopsy. I'm like, okay, well, let's just do it now. He's like, no, 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 you can't do it now because you need to set an appointment and this and that. And I'm like, well, how soon can it be done? He said, well, depends on your oncologist. If your oncologist has pull, we could maybe get it done sooner. And I said, well, he said, who's your oncologist? So I told him, and he's like, oh, she's got pull. <laughs> Those were his words. And so I had the needle biopsy as soon as possible thereafter, as well as an MRI. And then I think we both knew because this thing felt like this hard little marble, which was just what the first one had felt like on the opposite side. And, and the thing is, to me, what, what I imagined would be my worst nightmare was getting another diagnosis. And sure enough, that's what this was. And so what happened, Moyes, was that I literally lost my mind. And the day that I knew that I lost my mind was when I went to see a new radiation oncologist. I didn't want to go back to where I'd had radiation oncology, radiation before, because that radiation oncologist was an amazing doctor, but she wasn't there anymore. But that facility had treated me so cruelly, and I didn't know at the time how to fight back and fight for myself. I couldn't even drive by that place anymore. So I said to her, I'm not going there. She said, don't worry, you don't have to go there. Luckily, I lived in LA where there were a lot of choices. And she said, what about this place? I said, oh, that would be a nice, in a different direction from, you know, in a different neighborhood. I said, I'll go there. So I went for the consult. And these things, maybe you're there for like an hour, maybe two hours if you have to wait a long time. I spent the day there because I ended up in a sense, 
bringing tears to my eyes, collapsing in into the arms, uh, be they figurative, of this radiation oncologist. And she made me understand that I hadn't processed the first one, the first cancer, and that likely the reason I was reacting like this so strongly was that on top of that, now I had this. And she recommended, first of all, she sat with me, you know, she she held space and her team did as well. And then she said to me, you know, I, I, I know a therapist who specializes in cancer patients. Now, I had had a wonderful psychotherapist that I'd worked with for years, but she, I had lost her by this time. And that's another long story. So this second diagnosis was, there's no word that's strong enough to describe it. You know, devastating is one of them. And all the more so because at, by this point, I'd gotten really lucky with that GeoCities job and had the good fortune to make some money. And so I was able to sock it away. And I, what I did was I created what I called an emergency fund. I was in my 30s, you know, everyone I knew was getting married or buying houses or whatever. And I was like, mm. I stayed in my rent controlled apartment. I was afraid, you know, I lived a lot in fear, I guess. So I was able to use that emergency fund. And I thought, well, it's going to be a year like last time, so I can handle this. It ended up being a much bigger, longer, drawn out thing. But one of the things that came out of that was this particular radiation oncologist herself had experienced cancer in her family. And was, as far as I recall, positive for the BRCA, one of the BRCA mutations. So she had had prophylactic surgery herself. So she had a very keen understanding of what we go through. And we ended up having all of these conversations. And she tried to get me to go to the support group. And I said, no, not going to happen. Never, never. Because with cancer number one, I tried two support groups and ran away screaming because it was just not the right fit. You know, when you're the youngest person there and everyone has already had their best life and it's just completely incompatible. Anyway, she twisted my arm and twisted my arm in, in the best way, in the kindest way. And as my treatment was ending, she said, come on, just try it once. You know that I, you know, and she said, I moderated as well as they had an oncology social worker there. We both moderated. It's going to be safe. Just try it once. I'm like, fine, I'll try it once. <laughs> and I really think that she knew something would happen because every time that we would meet, I would bring all of these questions to her and we would have these conversations. And she would say, wow, I wish my other patients would ask as many questions. And I was like, I wished all the doctors would be so interested in having these conversations. And so I went to the support group and what it made me realize from day one was that by just being there and saying, hi, my name is Lisa. And at the time, I've had, I've had this twice. And I'm still here. And that's basically all I said, that there were some newly diagnosed people in the room. And that that was incredibly helpful for them to hear. And this was a monthly thing. So I decided, all right, fine, I'll go. And I went every month until, I, until it was too much emotionally for me. But it, I think she knew that I would be able to help other people 
and that in helping other people, that would help me. And she was absolutely right without us ever having that overt conversation. What was going on in the other parts of your life? So what about your professional life? Was that on hold while you were going through all this? It was definitely on hold. Like I said, luckily I had this, what I call this emergency fund. And so I could afford in a way to, to not work. Like I still had my very cheap apartment and, and what have you. And I really had this idea that it would only be a year, especially because this time I didn't need chemo because we used the Oncotype DX test to determine that chemo wouldn't be of great benefit to me given the profile of this particular tumor. But what happened was I ended up having all of these complications and I was put on tamoxifen this time and the, the fatigue I experienced, I remember thinking that I might have written about this somewhere that if I could afford to live the Downton Abbey lifestyle, you know, or, and not have to cook for myself and just do the basics of life, do my own laundry, and then I could carry on with tamoxifen. But we ended up stopping the tamoxifen because I also, I had cognitive issues as well. So I couldn't even actually really work work because of, of the severity of these side effects. So it took me a lot longer than the one year to to come out of all of this. So I don't remember the exact timing, but there came a point where I was able to start working again and I started going to a ceramic studio. And funnily enough, I found myself working, this was, I don't remember what year, it must have been 2008, end of 2008, for a doctor who needed to do a website redesign and it was really interesting working with him and his team, and I was starting to get back on track and able to work, and I was networking and looking for other projects, and then I went for my routine MRI, and we found the third cancer. So, uh, <laughs> just, uh, you know... It's, it's, it's just, I don't even know how to express this. And that's also why I laugh about it, because it's so absurd. Um, <laughs> gallows humor. And funnily enough, when this was found, the, we had reached kind of the end of a phase in that, in that work project. And so I was able to, I, I can't explain to you guys the intricacies of the alleged social safety net in this country. There barely is one. I had a little bit of money from disability based on money that I had earned. And, you know, but when I got the third one, my friends did fundraisers for me. All of these, all of these things happened, but it led to me, the long, the short or long, I don't know which version of it is, it led to me losing my apartment. And basically, technically being homeless for several years. I mean, I couch surfed and I pet, you know, I did pet sitting and dog sitting and house sitting for people. So by the time I, I got the third cancer, it was also 
this thing of, I cannot escape this. This is, you know, like I wrote about in, in, in this essay for Cancer Today magazine, where this Capoeira instructor had said to me, well, you know, I don't think of you as someone who's had cancer. And I know that this person meant it in the kindest possible way. But this on this, at this moment in time, it was like, I've now had this three times. It is a part of who I am, whether I like it or not. And what am I going to do with this? What, how can I make meaning of this? I've always been someone searching for meaning. And, and that seemed to be the, the way to go with it. And, and it was in, I don't know if it was embracing it or surrendering to it, that in a way I found a measure of peace with it because what else can you do? What does that look like? What does making peace with that look like for you? Uh, you ask such great questions. It's, it's about, you know, I have very vivid memories of during cancer number two, all of that radiation. So I would, I would drive myself there listening to punk rock because I was super angry. And I would come home and I would collapse on my couch. Now, I lived in an apartment that was on a hill. So I would park my car and I had this funny little parking spot where I had to climb over, the pa over to the passenger seat to get out of the car because of the way my parking spot was. And then I would have to kind of walk up this slope and then walk up all of these stairs to get up to my apartment. So by the time I opened my front door, I was already exhausted because of the capital F fatigue, which is an F word. And I, was, I would just be collapsed on my couch and I began to understand that. And funnily enough, it was the same Capoeira teacher who was incredibly wise, right? Who said a problematic thing, but also very wise. And we talked a lot about what does it mean to surrender? What does it mean to go with the flow. And, and I also remember years before a friend of mine had said to me, Lisa, it sounds like you're trying to fight the whole universe. Now, who do you think is going to win? <laughs> and so surrendering was accepting that I might have the most powerful will, willpower, which was something I'd always prided myself on. But but it could not conquer what was happening to me. I could not, by sheer force of will, make myself do things. I couldn't. I was stuck. And I, I also experienced a different disease, endometriosis. And it used to cut me down for two or three days at a time every month. And that wonderful therapist I was talking about, one day she said to me, she's like, Lisa, have you thought that if you could surrender on the days that you're not able to function, rather than fight what's happening to you, that that might help you. And to me, that was, that was just heresy. Like, what? How? You have to fight. <laughs> but, you know, that was something I pondered. And, and, and it was something that I did try with that. And it did make it less difficult. And so I applied that same thinking. And again, you know, this wasn't some overnight light bulb. It was a process of days and weeks of radiation of every single day. And, and also, I remember this, this friend, the capoeira instructor, would, I would say, 
it was so exhausting talking to this person on the phone and they're my friend, but we only spoke for 10 minutes. And he said to me, he's like, Lisa, you need to learn to be ruthless and make choices. It's like you are right now facing life and death choices. So if talking on the phone is something that drains all of your energy, then you have to not talk. You have to be able to say no to that. So it was a lot of of learning about. I, I thought I had done it with the first one, but clearly I hadn't. You know, what's important in life and how to preserve your energy or how to, you know, what survival is and what nourishes you, right? They say that life sends you lessons until you learn them. <laughs> so what three lessons did you learn in the course of your life to date? Maybe part of it is that disruption is really part of who I am. I thought I had found a measure of stability recently with this great job, and then they ended up shutting down the department and laying me off. And and so I'm still reeling from that. And there's this, you know, some of these sort of trite things people say, but that are true that, my gosh, we live in these times right now where nothing is certain, where despite all the atrocities in this world, there are such incredible people. And I, I came to understand one of the ways in which I sort of define who I am and what I do now is that my life and my career and even my art or what have you are all about connection and repair and, and that we have to try and, and connect and repair and love in, even in the smallest possible ways. You know, a dear friend of mine died of AIDS when I was going through cancer treatment. We found out that he had transitioned from HIV to AIDS. And he had grand life ambitions that he would have fulfilled. He was an incredible person. And he had to recalibrate all of his expectations for himself. And we would have long conversations. And he said to me, you know, I thought I was going to be able to reach millions of people and change the world. And I realized that I can only reach the people that I interact with, but that in each interaction, there's the possibility, right, to, you know, to affect others. And that's something that has always been so important to me. You know, I grew up under apartheid in South Africa, and I call, I call that the, the moral injury of growing up under that system, even though I'm a white person, and that I would connect with people and see their humanity and their soul, regardless of their position in life or how society categorized them or viewed them. And to me, that's fundamental. And there it is. There is the lesson that you are teaching us as much as life has taught you. (laughs) Uh, Lisa Bernstein, you're an extraordinary woman, Uh, three times cancer diagnosis. The willpower you have would generate power for a small country, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Connection and repair. What a wonderful thing to talk about. It's been a joy spending time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Moyes. Now I'm in tears. (laughs) Thank you. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the Journal of Health Design dot com.